it is the pink elephant theory. If the guest wants a pink elephant, get them a pink elephant. If you can't find a pink elephant, get a horse, paint it pink, convince the guest that's an elephant. Do whatever it takes to ensure they're happy. That's it. Are they happy? Welcome to the Pink Elephant Podcast. I'm Chris Adams, back with you today. Excited to have Andy Bozzo. Did I, did I say it right? Did I do it? Perfecto. Yeah, you did very well. That's very well. Thanks, Ed. Um, I, I said I've got to, I got to make sure that I uh, honor the Italian roots and do it, do it justice there. But man, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Yeah, it's great to be here. I, I love uh, telling our story. I've seen a few of your podcasts, and there's great energy. So I'm really excited to be on board with you today. Thanks, man. So you know, let's dive into this. You currently. Um, you, I, from what I can understand, you, you have a few different hats that you wear, but let's start first, uh, I guess at the beginning and getting into being a firefighter. Okay. How did that, is that something that you, I mean, look, growing up as a kid, right? You're, I think every, every kid wants to be a firefighter, a policeman, something like that. Is that something that you wanted to do at an early age? I don't think it was. It was something that I was really interested in and intrigued uh-huh. by. Um, I think from age about zero to six, yes. Like I had fire trucks and um, I had, you know, the. I grew up in sort of rural California and the whole hillside behind my house or mountainside actually just went up. And then seeing all the equipment and personnel, yeah. that was captivating for me going to fire stations as a little kid was captivating. But then I had a lot of different interests. Um, you know, I got really into sports and um, I was pretty good at school. So, you know, I kind of went down the science route. And then I think around high school-ish, I started saying things like, oh, I want to be a doctor. You know, I think that made my parents happy. And, you know, that was sort of a sigh of relief. Um, and I sort of started down that track. But then and I did major in biology in college, but I really sort of gravitated away from like the molecular biologies and got more into mm-hmm. the macros. So like natural history. And the thing that got me sort of back into fire at the end of college and then sort of bridging the gap into graduate school, which I did not finish, um, uh, was this paper that I wrote. I finished college, but not graduate school. Um, this paper that I wrote about forestry succession in the West as it relates to fire. And I was like, this is cool because I was really into, you know, nature and biology and things like that. And, you know, I figured I had to do something more academic than, you know, I didn't understand that firefighting also has a big academic component to it. But um, I got into, uh, I dove deep into that paper. I was really into it. Graduated from college, started teaching science. And then I decided to go back to graduate school. I said, all right, well, you know, maybe a way to get this, you know, out of my system is to start fighting wildland fires for Cal Fire, pay for graduate school that way. Um, and then, you know, I'll go on to do something very sciencey or whatever. And I'm telling you the first whiff of smoke um, rolling down the road with like six en- other engines and aircraft overhead to like our first column of smoke. I was like, this is it. Uh, this is my career. Like whatever had been dormant as a little kid just blossomed. And um, I, this is all I wanted to do. And so I sort of set my professional compass at about 27 years old towards that. 
Um, and I've been a firefighter ever since I've been on for about 25, 26 years. And, uh, currently I'm working as a battalion chief for Contra Costa County fire, even people from California go Contra what? And so if you know where (laughs) Oakland is, that whole big County that wraps around Oakland, Oakland's in Alameda County. Um, but, uh, if you know where San Francisco and then Oakland is, everything around the East Bay sort of wrapping around that is Contra Costa County. Um, I believe the Spanish pronunciation is like away from the coast or counter to the coast. Um, but, uh, you know, we're on the East Bay and God, we have miles and miles of like waterfront with, you know, gnarly heavy refineries. But then we have the 80 freeway running through the Highway 4, uh, the 680. We have tall buildings. We have urban rural interface. So what I love about that department is I get to do everything. It's you get to do a bit of everything. We have, you know, an aircraft or had an aircraft program. We work with, um, you know, local aircraft. We have a bulldozer program, but we have fire engines and fire trucks, just like in LA County or in LA city. And on any given day, you could be six floors up, finding an apartment fire, come back down, get a swig of water, put on your wildland gear and go off and do a thousand acres. And so, um, it is a great department. It's just, it's, it's a place that people don't really associate with the San Francisco Bay area, but it's where we are. It's crazy. Yeah. And I mean, being into being in California in general, I mean, the, the fire situation mm-hmm. that, uh, happens in the state. Um, I mean, every year it seems like it just gets worse and worse. Um, how have, I mean, you've been doing this for 20 plus years. Mm-hmm. You're now running an entire division yeah, uh, battalion right uh, a battalion yep. okay talk um, and i'm you know you've seen the podcast obviously i'm a i'm, I'm huge on leadership and what does that really mean yeah. the process for you of of 20 something years ago going down the road and it it's spurring something like oh my god i want to do this for a career to now running a battalion what has what's changed for you in the 20 plus years of either people you've worked for things that you've encountered um the growth that's happened within you to now running a battalion and the leadership that it takes to do that in such a high pressured field that you're working on on a day-to-day basis yeah there's a few pillars that are floating around for me one is don't ask your guys to do anything that you weren't willing to do yourself so at some point mm-hmm. in my career I've run over the, the, the trench a lot. Um, you know, uh, I've been in some pretty significant fires. Um, and I also have gotten, uh, my ass kicked a few times. And so sort of storing that knowledge and what we call in our, you know, industry and other industries, recognition, prime decision-making like, Ooh, this is going to go bad. You know, when I was a firefighter, I didn't care as much what happened to me. It was like, oh, this will be, you know, a glorious, you know, whatever. And now as I send my guys in, it's like, I'm sending you home to your wife and kids, or I'm sending you home to your loved ones. And, and we're going to do our risk benefit work. You know, we have this other pillar, you know, with regard to human life, we've all taken the oath to risk a lot to save a life. We will risk our lives. And you've seen it play out across the United States. And it's actually what spurred tablet command, um, you know, we'll risk our lives for other human life, no matter what that life looks like, you know, even if there's a sliver of a chance, we'll do it at the same time as a leader. Now I have to do a real risk benefit all the time to say, is that life even with us anymore? 
or do I have to pull my guys back? And there are some really harrowing stories um, around the United States of that. You know, I think about, uh, you know, the Worcester fire, you know, many years ago where a division chief had to basically bar the door and say nobody else is going in there um, because guys just kept on going into the slaughter, so to speak. And it was really sad. And it was, you know, I, his courageousness um, to stop anybody else from that impulse. Um, the other thing that really drives me leadership wise is like servant leadership. I think what I've learned, you know, both as a captain and now working as a battalion chief is, you know, leading roll call every day with my companies, um, which are my fire engines and fire stations is what can I do for you? What, how can I serve your needs? Like, can I help you professionally develop? Can we all get better as a battalion? Um, are we, you know, what needs do, do you need met today? And it's, there's a big difference. There's guys will say, Oh, that's bullshit. You're just rolling over for your guys and blah, blah, blah. And that's, there's a, there's a very nuanced difference between being a soft leader and letting anything go, but being a servant leader and rolling up your sleeves and being with those guys on the ground floor, you know, and, and credibility is a big, big part of it. I worked busy stations or the busiest stations that I could work in my agencies um, my entire career. Um, I tried mm -hmm. to, um, at least. I may have taken you know, a year off and gone to a slower station when we had a child at home and I wasn't getting any sleep there and absolutely wasn't getting any sleep at work. But <laughs> I'd say for the most, the big majority of my career, I've tried to work at our busiest, craziest stations to have that sort of credibility um, to say to a younger guy, hey, look, I know you're kind of going for glory here, but it ain't worth the squeeze, kid. Like you're, this is, this thing is going to get leveled to the ground and there's no life in there worth saving. So, um, you know, and that's hard to do because we yeah. are an aggressive, very interior oriented fire department. And sometimes you got to pull the reins back and say, not today. You know, you brought up a couple of points that I want to talk about. One is the fact that leadership is a heavy mantle. Mm -hmm. Leadership is just um, it's there's so much responsibility that comes with leadership. And it's interesting talking to you because normally I'm having these conversations with whether it's CEOs or, or other individuals. And we talk about the responsibility of leadership and the burden that you take on as a leader, which is very true, no matter what the industry is. As I'm talking to you, you not only have the burden of just being a leader and wanting to make sure that you're, you're doing the things you just talked about. Are you investing in your people? Are you helping with their personal growth? Those things. You also have another layer of responsibility. It says, no, this is life or death. Yeah. The stuff that most of us deal with as a CEO or, or, you know, any, any leadership position is, you know, did I make a good decision today? Um, did I put my team at risk from a financial standpoint? Did I make a good decision to, to, to book the business? Did I lose a contract? That's a really different responsibility than saying, are they going home to their family today? And I think when, when, I mean, I'm, I'm sitting here trying to empathize with being in that position and I go, man, that's, I know the weight that I feel, um, from my team. I don't know what it would be like to take that weight and compound it with 
am I making good enough decisions that they go home today to their family? And that is, man, that is, that's heavy. Yeah. I mean, at any given time, I have at minimum 25 people that I'm supervising and we are literally walking into fires and, or other emergencies where there could be bullets flying or, you know, um, any number of hazardous materials, uh, noxious gases that can, you know, kill you on site. And so it is a really, um, I mean, I, I, you know, the leaders that I tried to pattern myself off of were all incredible leaders by example and servant leaders. And they all to a one would say, I lay awake at night and I just think about the what ifs. And so you're constantly going through those scenarios in your mind. What if this happens? Well, what if this refinery does this? What if, you know, this neighborhood is threatened? What if these guys are in this position? And so you're kind of cataloging all these, you know, for you Star Trek nerds out there, Kobayashi Maru's, um, you know, these unwinnable scenarios to try to to make them winnable or to minimize those. Um, You know, some of the best leaders that I followed would say the best way to um, you know, save a firefighter from a mayday, which is like when you're in trouble and things are going really bad, is to not have the mayday in the first place. And so that means solid tactics, um, solid strategy. But it is a burden um, that, you know, they say they just lay awake at night, all the guys that I have followed in their footsteps, and now I find myself doing the same thing, you know, um, stressing internally, I'm trying to be a duck, you know, very calm in the face of whatever crisis we're managing, but my little feet are paddling underneath me, running through a catalog of scenarios and escape routes, if you will. Yeah. The other thing you brought up that I think is important as we talk about leadership, and again, it goes from us, the scenario that I typically am talking about to yours as literal real life is sometimes as a leader, you're forced to make the hard decisions. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's not an easy thing to do. No one likes, most people don't like conflict and all these things. And to have to make those tough decisions that most people don't want to make, that's, that's leadership. Well, with you, that's not just leadership. Sometimes it's, it's barring the doors to keep people from going in that on one hand, they feel like they've taken an oath and it's, it's their responsibility and they, they want to do this. And it's your responsibility as a leader to identify and say, hey, this is we, we've crossed the line. Mm-hmm. It's time to stop mm-hmm. now. And that is a man. That's tough because you have to go home at night, and again, like you were just talking about, sit up and think about those decisions. Did I do the right thing? Did I do it too early? Did I wait too long? Mm-hmm. How many people did I? That's a man. That is. Um, it's really it's forcing me right now to think about leadership in a completely different perspective when you're talking about life or death. Yeah. With the decision-making process, man. Yeah. It's It's crazy. I mean, you know, in the business world, it's, you know, the customer and the team, the team delivering the product to the customer is the customer feeling good about, you know, the product that they received or the service they received is the team feeling good. And are they clicking on all cylinders? And that same parallel is existent in the fire service where it's your team, your firefighters, your captains, your engineers, and then the customer being the civilian that's in danger or the public, you know, and we serve the public in a variety of ways from innocuous things like fire station tours and um, uh, school visits, which, you know, the, the kindergartners go crazy for. And then we serve them in the most 
um, harrowing ways as well, um, rolling a whole uh, strike team of vengeance through Montecito to get citizens out right now, or Malibu, um, or uh, you know any neighborhood with urban rural interface, or you know putting um, a line inside of a building, a, a, a fire hose inside of a building, and putting it between the fire and the endangered citizens, while other people, other firefighters dive in and grab that citizen through a window. So it's you're, that's the product that we're delivering in some respects. And, you know, we want to make sure that we deliver it correctly. And it just means training, 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 training. I mean, I guess that's sort of the, the one constant throughout every, I think, you know, the old leave it to beaver um, sort of rendition of the fire services, the firefighters just play pinochle all day. They play in cards and, and um, <laughs> you know, hanging around and petting the dog. And really, I, I can't think of any fire station around the United States that I haven't visited through Tablet Command or that I haven't gone to for a training that they're not eight to five training or running calls, um, you know, Monday through Saturday. Sunday, they might have the football game on while they're doing something else. But we're so busy training for every myriad scenario that we get, that gets thrown at us. So... Last two things I want to talk about before we jump into Tablet yeah. Command is one, our industry, you know, we do a ton in the hospitality industry, right? So it's, it's hotels yeah. and um, it's amazing to me as I listen to you talk how interchangeable um, hospitality in general is, right? When we talk about our industry, you go into the hospitality industry because in theory, um, those that are great at it, I care more about others than I do myself. Yeah. I, I wake up every day with a mindset of, of how do I take care of other people? How do I make other people happy? Please let me grab your bags. And I do that because I want yeah. to, not because it's my job to do it, right? Which is literally what you and your teams have to do on a daily basis. You're doing it because you care more about someone else's life than, in theory, you do your own many times. Um it's hospitality on a whole other level. Yeah, but it's also hospitality on the same level too. You know, if we're going to get our groceries for the day and, you know, we're looking around for those opportunities to carry somebody's bags or, you know, to open the door for somebody, you know, one to kind of reaffirm that message that the fire department is always there for you. You know, it, um, whether it's, hey, you're, you're struggling with holding your shopping cart, it's going to roll away. Let us put our put your groceries in there, or um, you know, hey, you have a snake in your backyard, you know. So, um, in fact, you, what what you just said reminds me of um, there was a great fire chief out of the city of um, Phoenix. His name was Alan Brunacini, and he wrote a great book on fire command, which is based a lot on um, it's the structural version of of a lot of the principles that were developed in California over the massive wildfires that occurred in the seventies and eighties, which encouraged this like mutual aid system. And we can get into that later. But another tenet of his um, leadership was customer service. And he was a huge customer service advocate, both internally and externally. So for years, if you interviewed for Fire Department USA anywhere, a lot of those interview questions for entry-level firefighters was, what does internal customer service mean to you? And what does external customer service mean to you? And external customer service can mean throwing a ladder to the second floor, diving into that smoky 
room and pulling out the baby and handing it to a teammate and being excellent at throwing that ladder. But it can also mean walking the paper up from Mrs. Smith's sidewalk. And he always used to use Mrs. Smith as a, as a reference and handing it to her um, as you're pulling away from a call that's next door or shoveling the snow off the walk or whatever it was. It was all those little things that are totally applicable to hoteliers and to um, great waiters and great um, uh, hosts and great hospitality outreach where it's like, you've come to us for a service to, to, and hopefully you leave here feeling really good about the service that we provided for you. And we really take that seriously as well. Customer service internally to each other, how we treat each other, how we regard each other as colleagues and teammates, how we have straight conversations, but we're professional. And then how, <laughs> sometimes unprofessional, but, um, <laughs> but then, um, you know, how do we project that outwardly to the, the customer base, which is very parallel to uh, that we serve. So, yeah. And the last thing I want to touch on is you talked about training. Mm -hmm and the the importance of it and i think it's obvious in your in your line of work how the importance of training and it's shocking to me you know one of the things that we see in the hospitality industry is the especially now the constant struggle with helping um whether it's ownership groups management companies whatever it might be helping helping them understand the importance of training mm -hmm. and investing back in your people and it's so tough because we live in a world now where if I can't look at it on a, on a PNL or I can't create an actual ROI against something right. that says, if I invest this, what's the dollar I'm going to get on the other side? Because everything is, it has to be a tangible dollar amount. Then the first thing that gets cut in most of these, uh, whether it's a hotel or whatever we're dealing with is the training piece. Well, can, can you get it done in two days? Mm -hmm. You know, how do we, how do we, how do we shrink that training calendar down? So it costs me less money or how do we, you know, is there something we can, can we send them something online for them to watch or how do I make this quicker, easier so I can just get more out of my team to get them back on the floor doing work. And if I could take what you do and the importance of how training impacts on a day to day basis, the success rate, which is life or death which has way more importance than what we do on a daily basis, but the correlation between why training matters and what it does for you and your team long-term, not just for your business, but for your people individually, for their personal growth, for the morale. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it is just, it's mind blowing how I don't understand why people don't realize the impact that training can have. And it's so great to hear how, obviously that's alive and well in your industry and something that happens on a daily basis, which thank God, because of what you do. Yeah. It's, I mean, <laughs> the best way to shine, if, if you think that you're going to hide from some sort of skill, Murphy is going to come right in there and shine that spotlight right on you. And yeah. so, you know, in a lot of ways, whether it's, you know, superstition or just fear of failure we train. The other thing about training that's really important, and I think I could take this back to when I was teaching seventh grade science or working as a busboy or working as, you know, um, in, in a variety of jobs, is the willingness to be vulnerable. The willingness to say, I'm really weak on this skill 
and I'm going to look dumb in front of everybody right now. It could be a physical skill. It could be you're pecking away at the keyboard looking for the you know, shift command key, whatever key. Um, I'm, but the only way to really overcome that is reps. And I think what, rep, you know, repetition, um, yeah. and, and, you know, building muscle memory, whatever that looks like. Um, and the only way to really get there is to say, I want to be better. I, I, and I think that's kind of, I'm lucky to work in an organization that is really driven by that. And then that flows into tablet command as well. But mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's something I sometimes think the younger kids will say, well, I just should know this. I should be good at it. And so then you kind of hide your weaknesses. And I think as we mature and we realize, well, you really don't know everything. I want to learn. I'm going to go ahead and put myself out there. I mean, that's, that's kind of how we launched this business is putting ourselves out there. You know, it's scary, but you kind of realize, well, or, you know, what's the worst that could happen? And, you know, you want to make those mistakes in our industry where it is life or death. You want to make all those mistakes in training. And, yeah. but, and, and, and then in other industries, it can mean the difference between landing a huge contract or making a big sale or upselling to a, a better wine or upselling to the specials. So it's, you know, training, you know, kind of just filing the burrs away and polishing. It's a really important aspect of, um, you know, betterment, getting better on the job. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. So now let's transition okay. um, into tablet command. All right. So walk us through um, first, what is it? Okay. Let, let's start there. So this is interesting because uh, again, you coming from the hospitality and event management, I think this will speak to you a lot. Um, when we have emergencies and I'll use a fire, but this is applicable to any emergency that you can click on the news today and probably unfortunately watch unfold. You throw a lot of personnel into sort of a defined area um, that we call, you know, the hazard zone. And mm-hmm. um, it's really important to have a coordinated effort within that hazard zone to mitigate that emergency. So to use the example of a house fire, just a very simple example, you've got a fire on the second floor coming out of the bedroom and a potential rescue in a back bedroom as well you're going to have an engine company or two going in and trying to knock that fire down while simultaneously at least making contact with the victim to either get them out of a window or drag them down the stairs and out the front door. Simultaneously, you've got a company of backup firefighters ready to go after the initial firefighters that went in. You've got you got to hook up your engine to a hydrant. So you've got people working on that and you've got a truck company on the roof that's usually trying to create a hole over the fire to let all those gases and that smoke out. We put those into different categories and we time them and we theoretically keep track of them. And we've been doing that in the fire service for about 200 years. Um, And that has come, that tracking for the majority of that time has been on pencil and paper or a whiteboard or in some really newfangled ways with magnets like refrigerator magnets. Um, And we, because we had seen several line of duty deaths 
occur in mostly fires, but in other emergency scenarios where that fog of war that's happening when all of that chaos is unfolding, firefighters are getting lost, they're getting trapped, they're getting unaccounted for. And so they could be screaming for something uh, because they're in one part of the building that's um, getting really hot. And the incident commander, the head, the lead of the whole, um, which is usually a battalion chief like myself, and in some scenarios, it's a division chief in, in um, other organizations. Um, it had no idea that that part of the orchestration was going bad. Um, and so what we decided to do with Tablet Command, based on two line of duty deaths that we had in our own organization, um, and it was because of lack of communication, lack of incident command, um, there were some big gaps in this incident command structure, or if you will, event management structure, that led to um, the demise of two of our own firefighters while they were trying to make the ultimate sacrifice to rescue two citizens mm -hmm. trapped by fire. Now, what we decided to do is say, all right, we need to put together a better uh, standardized system of uh, first responder accountability. And when I, when I say accountability, I don't mean, you know, show up to work on time. I mean, where are you? What are you doing? What tactical channel are you communicating on? Who are you with? And how long have you been in there? That was the big thing that was missing with pencil and paper is how long. Um, and so what we did is we took a lot of these analog techniques. We basically took the event manager's clipboard. We digitized it and um, created a whole new incident management platform or emergency incident management platform that accounts for vehicle location. It accounts for early notification of the initial emergency. It gives you a lot of intelligence notes. It gives you camera views, um, mapping. And so you, we've basically given um, our industry what they've been using the whole time in analog and digital. We've tried to make it replicate writing or you know, moving, you know, engine companies from staging to fire attack. Um, you know, a lot of times they would write that. Now we're just tapping and dragging it. Um, and so that's what Tablet Command does. So if you have a major fire in the Malibu Canyon or, um, you know, a major high rise fire, you can use Tablet Command to manage those hundreds of personnel that are marching into that situation and categorize them as to who they are, what they're doing, how long they've been doing it, uh, where they're doing it. And that has basically daylighted um, what uh, you know, emergency management should be and it's standardized it. The problem with writing is you're writing, the way that you write the letter A is different than the way that I write the letter A and under stress, mm -hmm. it really changes. And there's no timestamp for anything. So we can't go back and analyze and then train in the areas where we are deficient and get better. So tablet command. How long? I'm sorry, go ahead. No, how long is it? How long have you had this in place now? So we, I conceived of it while playing words with friends, which is really, and I probably <laughs> conceived of that in, I think it was 2009 or 2010. I, I can't remember the date where I sent Will an email after sort of ruminating on this for about two weeks. Um, and we've been a product in the app store since 2013 
But halfway t- through 2013, we had a lot of fire chiefs come back at us and say, hey, look, this should be an enterprise application and you need to bolt it onto our 911 system. So we did that and we've been an enterprise software, software as a service um, since mid 2013. And, you know, we're at about 700 plus fire departments around the United States and Canada, large metro areas like Denver, Charlotte, Jacksonville. Um, we're about to deploy in Louisville, Mobile, um, you know, and there's not really a city in California um, with the exception of a couple holdouts um, that doesn't have tablet command or not affected by tablet command. So, um, wow. so you're, you're seeing a, a real impact. Um, it now filling this gap. Absolutely. In your industry. It's bringing a situational awareness that we didn't have before. And the interesting, and it comes from firefighters that have experienced these problems. And so, you know, we talk about the pink elephant and we also talk about eating an elephant one bite at a time. And mm-hmm. what fire chiefs across the board say, or fire professionals say is, look, I need small digestible bites when I need them. I can't eat the whole elephant at once. Otherwise, I'm completely overwhelmed. I need digestible bites and I need to be able to, to mitigate this incident in some uh, respects sequentially and other respects in parallel. But I still need the information that I need and I don't want anything superfluous. So that's been sort of the beauty of Tablet Command is creating this elegant platform and bringing all this information under one pane of glass, but um, allowing that incident commander to select which information is going to impact the next three minutes of the incident. So I have a couple of questions now. Um, When we look at technology in general right now, and I think we're seeing this across the board as AI is becoming more and more prevalent and you have like this, you know, this huge resistance on one side of, you know, the robots are going to take over the world. Um, And then the other side that's like, no, this is, this is a huge win for us. People struggle with change. Mm -hmm. Human nature, Mm -hmm. people struggle with change. As you were trying, as you were rolling this out, um, you said, you know, in California specifically, there's a few holdout cities here and there. How, how difficult has it been to take something that really is not changing anything? It's doing exactly what everyone was doing before, but in a new manner, right? It's a, it's a new approach to it. How difficult has it been and how much resistance have you had from just, Hey, I like writing stuff down. Don't change the product. Don't change what's, what's in my mind, not broken. Yeah. It's, um, it's been a spectrum. So, um, we nervously launched this at a fire trade show in early 2013. And we were stoked on the feedback that we got from the majority of people there, which was like, you nailed it. I've been thinking about something like this for a long time and you guys nailed it. So from a product market fit standpoint, the resistance has been minimal. I would say some of the older cowboys have been, look, I know this is good technology. I'm just scared to use it. I don't, I'm afraid I'm going to break it. I just, I know what I know and I'm retiring in six months or I know what I know. Um, you know, I'm getting out and, uh, but I, but I acknowledge, I concede this is the future and it's not much different. And then we've had some real, what has been really fun is we've had some real converts and evangelists in that group of cowboys, so to speak. 
Um, the other holdout doesn't necessarily come from resistance to use the technology. I'd say there's an overwhelming acceptance from the rank and file of give me this now. The hard part has been integrating with some of the legacy incumbents in the technology space. Um, yeah. They see it as a threat. Um, and then they can sort of pass that threat down to uh, the administration of some of these agencies that are holding out and sort of throw some red herrings in the process um, to where we have to do some real political work. And what's great is we have this unfair advantage. I can talk to a chief, chief to chief or captain to chief in real no bullshit language, excuse my language, but you know we can yep. talk real talk about how this product is going to improve. And I can point back to a lot of referential customers, not only in their own vicinity, um, but in their region and then beyond. So like I can definitely walk in and say, hey, don't take my word for it. You know, I know I'm the co-founder and I know I'm using it. I'm a product user. Um, I have an ulterior motive. I'm trying to run a business along with the tablet command team. Um, and if you don't take my word for it, call up Columbus, Ohio, call up Charlotte, North Carolina, call up uh, San Jose, call up Sacramento, call up LA County. Mm -hmm. let, uh, talk to, let me give you a name. And so that's the, I'd say some of the resistance, I'd say the majority of the resistance actually has been incumbents in the space that have enjoyed this sort of, um, they've enjoyed their position for a long time as, as software, uh, you know, delivery with software delivery in the space. And now here yeah. are these upstart firefighters come to say, we have a product that's way better and we need to integrate with this and that. And um, so th that has probably been the biggest mountain to climb for us. Yeah. Um, by now having this software and it's giving you new data mm -hmm. that you potentially haven't had in the past, mm -hmm. what is, um, how has it affected training? How has it affected maybe processes that you had done for years and years and assume that this is the way we should be doing it. But now because you have this new data, you're able to look at it and go, wait a minute, we've been actually doing something incorrectly, or we should alter the way we're doing it or tweak the way we're doing it because now we have data to tell us otherwise. Have you seen this give you the ability to go in and change? In my world, it's, it's SOPs, right? Standard operating yep. procedures yep. that I might have for something that we've been doing it this way for a long time. But now I have data to tell me we actually need to tweak or change that um, based on a variety of reasons. Have you seen that happen now getting additional data? Yeah, we've seen two different things. Well, we've seen a, a lot of uh, a lot of things happen. Uh, one of the most important things is that you can go back to the incident. And if you're using our checklist, um, which to mark down benchmarks that are occurring during a fire. So we provide those automatically and those are agency driven. So agencies will create these checklists that say, in the first five minutes of the fire, we wanna do A, B, C, D, and E. We gotta get these done in the first five minutes. And you might think that you're getting them done on time, but you're not really getting them done on time. Now, there can be a lot of factors that affect that. So we've at least, um, gotten to a point where we're looking at that and saying, all right, look, we did want to get a ladder to the roof in the first three minutes. 
The reason we didn't, because there were three pit bulls and yard cars. Um, and so we really got to look at the demographics of this neighborhood and some of the hindrances that we're going to face. So maybe that means that we're going to call additional alarms. Or we're going to call additional units. It's just gotten us to take a look at the incident um, a lot more closely versus what we used to do in the past is we'd put the fire out and then we'd all gather around one of the fire engines, usually the pumper engine um, in front of the house. And the battalion chief more times than I go, well, the fire went out, nobody got hurt. Good job. And that was it. And that's where it lives. Now we have the ability to look at when did you get water on the fire? When did you knock that fire down? When did you extricate a victim? When did you arrive on scene versus communicate that you needed a second alarm? And that's all now in an interface that you can hold in your hand. And not only, the other really important thing is that everybody across an agency, so I have an agency that has 35 or 36 stations now, um, 39 or 40 companies. And so there's 40 miles that separates our most Western battalions and our most Eastern battalions. And so a person that's out East can look at a fire that's happening out West and watch it unfold in the palm of their hand and just use that as informative for their training mm -hmm. the next shift. Hey, you guys, they had a hoarder house. Um, they used a certain type of, uh, you know, they used an inch and three quarter. They, they did this or that to that house. Let's train on that next tour. So that's one thing that we're seeing. The other thing that we're seeing is in the moment, you know, in larger scale incidents and in this particular anecdote, it's a wildland fire that happened um, in Northern California, the car fire. And we had two units that were mid slope during a massive blow up, meaning the fire was conditions were deteriorating rapidly and really heating up. It was literally exploding. Um, their, their road turned black. They had no idea which direction to turn. Their battalion chief, who was their strike team leader, was looking at them on the map and said, you need to make a right turn. You, they were at a crossroads. You need to make a right turn. It's going to take you to a, a large dam parking lot. Well, we've never been able to do that before. It was kind of like eeny, meeny, miny, mo, because we didn't really have that situational yeah. awareness. So that's been a big change as well. When you see rapidly deteriorating conditions and you can see where your units are on the map or where you've deployed them to perform a certain task, that's something that um, that situational awareness has never existed before. And that's something that fire commanders have always dreamed of. And now they just have to get used to um, uh, putting that seamlessly into their operating uh, uh, methods. Yeah, man, I tell you, it's, it's amazing when you think about technology and the fact that you're, we're, it's one thing because look, every industry has more technology that comes into it that makes us, you know, more efficient or whatever that might mm -hmm. be. But are we actually taking the data that we're getting from this technology and doing something with it to benefit us moving forward and make us better in whatever industry or field that you're working in? And yours is life or death. In another industry, it might not be. But are we taking the data that we're getting? And are we actually doing something with it? It matters, right? Because easily you can have this, oh, cool, it made us more efficient. And then you could still do the same thing that, you know, you were always doing of the, all right, the fire is out, high five. But the fact that you're actually taking the data and doing something with that information to make yourself better the next time, 
is that's that's the the beauty and benefit of the time that we're living in that technology gives us that if we view it in a way as that it can benefit us versus the resistance of i don't want change and so it's it's great to see that you've got a product that you've put into place um that's doing that one it's it's making you know across the country and and in canada as well making um firefighters better at what they do but i think even more importantly it's making them better for the future to ensure that lives aren't lost um internally and externally uh because of what you've put into place and that's that's a huge win um i want to steer quickly here as we get to the tail end of this you know you've 20 something years you've been in firefighting um you've come up with a product that you think can make your industry better which now has put you in the position that you you wear two different hats you are the head of a battalion and you are now an entrepreneur that is this essentially running a a company that has running that company is very different from running the battalion so to speak right did you ever see yourself going down the entrepreneur route and second part to that question is how difficult has that been? How much have you had to learn going, being the, the founder of a, of a company and a product um, from your day to day and growing within the, the fire department? Yeah. So I absolutely, if you told me 15 years ago, Hey, you're this going to be this entrepreneur and you're going to be the founder or co-founder of a company, um, I would say you're really high. <laughs> um, <laughs> it wasn't, I didn't think it was something that suited me. Although I will say, I will go back to my um, days as a kid. You know, my parents lived near a golf course. We didn't live on a golf course. We just lived in a neighborhood like a few blocks away from a golf course. And my friends and I would go, you know, put our wetsuits on and get in the ponds and fish out golf balls and start selling golf balls for money. Um, and, uh, you know, luckily there are a lot of bad golfers that hit into the water. So a lot of good golfers <laughs> that hit into the water too. Um, so, you know, I would say there was a little bit, I was always drumming up, you know, work around the neighborhood as a, you know, car washes or, you know, cat sitting or whatever it was. Um, and so, and I do, I, I have a creative uh, bent to me. So creating new ideas, acting on those ideas has always been kind of fun, but I did not see myself doing this. You know, luckily, um, when I came up with this idea, uh, back in 2010, it was about a month, maybe two weeks to a month where I co-founded it with, um, the current CEO, which is Will Pigeon. And so, you know, I get to enjoy these two hats that I wear um, while, uh, you know, Will is running the company as the CEO and CTO. He was, um, he retired as a fire chief. He and I were both captains at about the same time in the same agency, trying to put this product forth, not only in our, our agency, but in, uh, you know, across the United States. So we were talking about how hard has it been to learn to run not only just a business, but a software as service company. And I'll tell you, there were times where I felt like people were speaking Greek and I had no idea. That came through when we were fundraising. 
um, that yeah. came through when we were building teams, when we were talking to software developers. Luckily, Will, um, early on, he's he was functioning as the CTO early on, and now he's kind of wearing both hats uh, right now. Um, he speaks a lot of the ones and zeros. I don't do ones and zeros at all. I am absolutely an end user. Um, so my value is, yeah, I don't think this is, we're going to get it. Um, or yes, this is how we need to see it. This is the workflow that it should look like. So early on, it was a lot of storyboarding on literal white butcher paper with colored pencils um, and shapes creating buttons and then moving that over to a wireframe software, learning how to use that. Just even learning, you know, firefighters in general are sort of dirt under your nails kind of guys. We're blue collar. It's a blue collar agency. You know, you roll up your sleeves, you go to work. It's a lot of brute force. Um, we're not the most polished gentlemen uh, out there. And I don't think you want us to be uh, gentlemen and gentlemen and gentlewomen. You don't want us to be. You want us to be able to kick down a door, to throw a ladder by ourselves. Um, at the same time, there was a certain amount of refinement that we needed to take into some of these meetings and learn how to communicate in uh, you know, a very professional way, learn to talk to a board, look, learn how to show metrics of success, and then learn how to field follow-up questions on deeper dives on those metrics. And so I would say that maybe I've gotten, you know, one half to two thirds of an MBA and I just kind of need a textbook to sort of match some terms with some concepts. But, you know, the bottom line is we had to build a business that made money, that created value in an industry that was 200 years of tradition unimpeded by progress and sell that in an authentic way. And I will say, you know, I live sort of near Silicon Valley. And so I have some Silicon Valley friends that have been in some high positions in companies. And 201, they've said, you absolutely <laughs> picked the hardest community, hardest industry to sell into, the government. And it's why, like, you know, when we tried to raise institutional money early on, um, it's why a lot of institutions just said, you're selling to the government. That's a hard pass. So, you know, we really had to grind to find people that believed that this business model could work within this industry. And now I will say, Chris, I'm fielding two or three calls a week from private equity, um, as is Will, um, saying, hey, we'd really like to make an investment. And I know we have scratched the first major vein into a mother load of data that we own. And I think they've sniffed it out because we put up a massive weather balloon and that's kind of where we are today. But yeah, it's been a grind. It's been hard, but it's been fascinating. I love it. I, I would do it again. Um, I would absolutely start another business. Um, I love building teams. I love empowering team members. And that crosses right over to being a battalion chief or being a, you know, I coach water polo for my, in my spare, spare, spare time as kind of therapy, but it all folds into one. You're empowering people. Yeah. You're getting people that are smarter and better than you. 
um, to make something go forward. And I would say that about the Tablet Command team. You know, we have some very smart people that are just really uh, empowering us to move forward. So, well, man, I can't thank you enough uh, on a number of fronts. One, for being here with us today, sharing the story. Two, for um, what you've done um, from a career standpoint and being out there in the trenches with your teams, um, protecting and being a part of that firefighter community. And then also from a leadership entrepreneurial perspective and what you what you're doing, um, the message that you're that you're out there telling um, and um how you're 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 really making your mark in an industry that needs it and i can take everything you're saying and replicate it right into hospitality yeah. of a industry that's been around for a long time that really struggles with change um you have done that and you're proving that it's it's necessary and it's beneficial and once you get people on board they really see um what what it brings to the table and how it can help you flourish moving forward so and i can't thank you enough for today and, and what you're doing and what you will continue to do i look forward to doing this again um in a few months to see how it's continuing to progress and and i hate to to use the analogy of um, catch fire, but um, really take this and spread it across um, the US, Canada, and, and even globally. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks for having me. I, I really love this conversation. I love drawing parallels, and there's no better parallel than um, your industry where it's all about service. Um, I think it speaks to the Italian and both of us. And, uh, you know, it's been a great uh, honor to be here today. And I look forward to coming back and, and reporting on progress and, uh, and we can uh, talk further. So thanks for having me. Of course. Now, if people want to find you, get more information about Tablet Command, uh, what's the best way to do that? Yeah, we're in all the social media channels. So www.tabletcommand.com or tabletcommand.com. We're on Instagram at Tablet Command, Twitter, Threads, LinkedIn. Um, you can uh, read anything from blogs on new releases of uh, different uh, products that we're releasing or different features that we're releasing to customer testimonials all over Instagram and how Tablet Command has enhanced operations across the United States. So we'll look forward to seeing you on one of our social media channels. Um, and you can also find us at tabletcommand.com. I love it. Thanks so much. I am Chris Adams. You've been listening to the Pink Elephant Podcast. You can find me on Instagram at chrisadams.official, the website www.ellisadamsgroup.com. Um, you click around and you can find us anywhere. Make sure that you're giving us some feedback on this. We'd love to take some questions and get you in touch with Andy if that's something that you're needing. Um, and also subscribe. We look forward to seeing everyone next week.